step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I want to know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height in the hat, put it all in the hat. Hi, welcome to Hat Radio. This is Avram Rosenzweig, and it's just a delight to have you. I'm excited to be back, uh, this being our fifth episode. And I. Uh, this is a very special episode for me, especially. Because I'm here with my dear friend, Ellie Rubenstein. Big hand. Oh, we don't have a crowd. I'm sorry. <laughs> Nobody showed up, Ellie. Um, and Ellie and I have been friends for how many years, would you say? Uh, I think since Mount Sinai, if I'm not mistaken. When we were born? <laughs> or where the Torah was given. Well, the Torah was given. Right, right. Some 3,000 something years ago. So we've been friends for many, many... Friends uh, since Yeshiva years. Millennia. Which would be at least, I would say... Uh, 45 years or so. Really? That long? Yeah. My, you're getting old. Yeah. Yes. We, we, were, we met when we were like 15, 16, I think. Yeah, right. And there's a story behind that, actually, isn't there? One that I don't think you like very much, but I'll tell a few of those. <laughs> Please. <laughs> yeah. So, Ellie is a very, very uh, fascinating human being. Why? Well, he's my dear friend. That's never easy. And the second thing is that he is the uh, National Director of March of the Living. And one of the things that we want to discuss on this show today is uh, what took him there. There's actually a correlation between what you do with the march and you being the spiritual leader at Habonim. Both of them have to do with survivors. And I've always been fascinated by what it is about you, Ellie, that really drew you to survivors. All of us care about survivors, but none of us really go out of, or very few of us go out of our way to make sure that their lives are better in the ways the way that you have. So I want to discuss that throughout the show. And the other thing that I would like to get to as well is you started off as an Orthodox Jew in life, and eventually you evolved into nothing? No. Into... You, 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 you became, where, where would you put yourself now? What denomination? Well, I like to say there's Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, and Confused. And I, <laughs> That's I'm where you are? Confused branch. I would say a re religious humanist. A religious humanist is what I would say. Okay. In, in other words, to explain that further, um, somebody once asked a Hasidic Rebbe, I, I, I heard this years ago, how do you know if somebody loves God? And the answer was if they love people. And so that nice. is my way of serving God by loving humanity. And whether or not you believe in God is not important to me. The important thing is we serve God by loving each other. All right. So let, let's start at the beginning or close to it. Yes. You were brought up in what would be considered to be a Haredi environment, a very right-wing environment, Orthodox, right? Yeah. Did you, did you ever have payas? No. But many, side my, girls? many of my friends did. They did, right? Yeah. So it wasn't unusual for you to have a friend or know somebody who was that religious. Not at all. Okay. It would be unusual the other way around. You started learning Chumash. You started learning Mishnayot and Talmud when you were, what, eight or nine years old? I, I went to I went to time. So we started, started Chumash in the earliest, earliest grades, probably six or seven years of age, I would guess. Right. And again, these are very religious schools. And the thing about Talmud, 
that our listeners should know is essentially you are an eight or nine or 10 year old child. It's nine or 10 o'clock in the morning and you are studying these ancient legal texts having to do with such things as if my uh, cow gores your cow, right? Yes, correct. So that's what you were studying. Yes. Well, why do the Orthodox study that at all? I mean, their belief is that the greatest, like, if you look at certain religious traditions, you know, what do they have in the afterlife? Some of them have things to do with sexuality. Some have to do with um, um, other uh, physical delights. In Judaism, the afterlife is studying Torah. Right. That's for them the greatest pleasure. Right. And they believe that when you study Torah, you're actually communicating with God. You're actually entering the mind of God. You're actually having a dialogue and conversation with God. There's nothing more pleasurable than communicating with God, than studying God's Torah, than, than having a dialogue with God. So that's the belief. And that's their 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 practice studying Torah is what they think they're they, they've been commanded to do. Did you find it pleasurable? Yes and no. I found the intellectual challenges of it very pleasurable because it is very, very um, challenging to the mind. It really expands your mind. It yes. really it really causes you to, to stretch. But ultimately, it's not for me. Not because um, I don't see the, the intellectual value in it, but I don't believe in art for art's sake. I believe whatever we learn, whatever we study, whatever we teach should cause us to be better human beings, to right. cause us to be kinder and gentler and more merciful, more empathetic. And some of what we were learning was not didn't make us less empathetic or more empathetic, was not relevant to anything in that category. It was too technical. It was too my, involved in minutia. So what I gravitated towards eventually, and we can get to that, is more a study of the ethics of Judaism, the values, the, the, the positive contribution Judaism has made to human progress, and less about the esoteric, legal, halachic disputes that are, are not a, as much of interest to me. So, I mean, I mean the amazing thing, Ellie, was that you were considered to be a very good student, a Talmudic scholar to some extent, at a young age. So one would think that in order for someone to arrive at that place, they would have to be passionate about it, they would have to really focus on it. But was there something going on in your little head? Or how early was it when you started to think to yourself, you know what, this just doesn't seem to work for me? It's a, it's a very difficult question to ask where these ideas come from. I'm reminded of a very funny but yet profound Hasidic story where a little boy, is about four years old, goes to his parents and says, listen, I want to have a few minutes alone with my sister. The sister's only six months old. Just a few minutes alone with her. And I don't want you anywhere near her. I said, okay. But right. they don't trust him. So he goes into the room, closes the door. They're looking through the keyhole. He goes over to the little girl in the crib and says, now listen, you. Where exactly did you come from? Right. That's the funny part of the story. The profound part is because I'm already beginning to forget. Very nice. And it's an interesting story. You can think about that story f for a long time. And for me, the story means that each of us has an inner core that somehow we're born with that we spend our entire lives trying to fight to get back to. And that's what I was discovering throughout this journey, that the life of an ultra-Orthodox Jew was not meant for me. It may be meant for other people, but it's not meant for me because my ultimate worldview is one that embraces life 
embraces all aspects of life in a positive manner, not, not illegal things, not things that aren't healthy, and embraces all humanity. I don't like segregation between sexes, between races, between religions. I, I believe embracing each other, learning from each other, sharing with each other, and enjoying the legitimate pleasures of the world in a healthy fashion yes. is, is what we were created to do. And, and that, I can't, that can't be found within orthodoxy? Well, it could be, but not the way I was raised. So it, it is possible within certain rounds of orthodoxy to have that kind of approach. But in the community I was in, probably not. And it also could be because there was a trauma of the Holocaust and a lot of the Jewish community, I'm not the first person to say this, many, many parts of that Jewish community turned inward because they were so traumatized by what yes. happened in the Holocaust that, you know what, let's run away from the world. Let's just do Judaism, let's just do halakha, let's do that, and let's ignore everything else. That could have been part of the post-Holocaust traumatic response. So how were you raised? I was raised very strictly. Give, give me an example. Like, every, for the way I looked at it, the way I look at it now, yeah. um, I'm a little more um, understanding, but still, I enjoyed many things that I wasn't allowed to do. Like what? I couldn't. I, you weren't allowed to read the newspaper. You weren't allowed. Weren't allowed. I, either, either weren't allowed to. You were discouraged from listening to the radio, from li, you know, rock music, from having a girlfriend, from being involved, going to the movies. Everything in the world that I found appealing and I found interesting and I found um, intriguing was off limits to me. And um, something inside of myself said, "This isn't for me. This is not how I want to live the rest of my life." Right. Now, I will say there are many other people who weren't bothered by that, and for them, you know, then, then that's their correct path. I mean, I've come to the conclusion in life that when it comes to ethics, there's a right and wrong. There's thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. It's not, it's not subjective. These are values that are universal. When it comes to ritual, it's what's right and wrong for you. And for many Jews, the exacting rituals of alt-Orthodox Judaism gives them structure and meaning and, and beauty and shape. And as I say in Yiddish, Gesundheit, wonderful. Right. wasn't for me. For me, I found it um, very confining and not liberating. But, so so I, yeah. I, I, you, you, were, uh, you gave up Orthodoxy before I did. Yes. Really minutes in the whole scheme of thing, minutes before so I did. So you're blaming me Well, I'm going to blame you for something here. <laughs> I remember distinctly, and I don't think you remember this story, we were at a pool, and I was still keeping Shabbat, and um, you threw me in the pool. Look at that smile on your face. That is a true story. I remember it vividly. So my question to you is, when were you proverbially or otherwise, when were you thrown into the pool? I have to check with my attorneys before I respond. Go through your notes. Whether this is true or not. Um, I, I, what happened was I, um, I was going to a synagogue. Yes. And I really was not... I, I just was not connecting to the synagogue service. And, I, and, I, and, and the reason for that is quite clear. I mean, and I'll give you an introduction to that because it'll explain some of my religious philosophy and I'll explain to you one of the reasons why I left. Lenny Bruce says as follows. Millions and millions of people are leaving the church every day and finding God. <laughs> That's a great line. And it's not the church only. It's the mosque. It's a temple. It's yeah. a synagogue. So yeah. why, why is that? Why are people fleeing from organized religion and finding spirituality elsewhere? A great question. And the answer is as follows. Because... If you ask most people what they're dealing with in life, what are the challenges? What are the things that cause them the most concern? They'll talk about aging parents. They'll talk about the environment. They'll talk health, about family. world peace, health, family, meaningful relationships, yeah. principles, values, 
all those kinds of things, world peace, and you open up most prayer books of most religions, and what will you see in there? God with a mighty hand, slew yeah. the enemies and redeemed. And, and most people will say today, you know what? This doesn't speak to me. This is not where my spiritual concerns are. There's nothing inherently wrong with those prayers, but they were designed and written and created for generations before us where it did speak to them, but it doesn't speak to us anymore. You know the famous joke, how many ultra-Orthodox rabbis did it take to change a light bulb? How many? The answer is change. Right. Change? <laughs> Never. So f- I really truly believe that anything... Um, and it's not just it's not just plants. It's not just animals. It's not the human beings. It's not just cultures, religions. Everything needs to evolve in order to remain relevant, and we need to find a way to make our religious practices as relevant and meaningful as connected to us as they were to generations before us. That is more authentic. And so what happened was, I was going to the synagogue and I was not getting anything out of those prayers, um, probably because philosophically. You know the, the the prayer book um, underpinnings didn't work for me. I mean, right. you look at you look at an event like the Holocaust, you see that millions of Jews were murdered, six million Jews, over a million between a million and a million and a half children were murdered in the Holocaust, some of the most brutal ways possible. Yes, less than one percent of Nazi war criminals were even ever prosecuted yeah. for their crimes. So you look at the world and you realize that the world does not work the way the prayer book seems to work. In the prayer book, you're praying for God to intervene and intercede, and you're doing good deeds. So it, it just didn't speak to me in a way that, that worked for me. And then on top of that, um, some people weren't too nice to me in synagogue. And the last time I went to synagogue, the ultra-Orthodox synagogue I attended, somebody started yelling at me, just yelling at me because I was talking in the back of the synagogue. I was just having a nice private conversation. This person was yelling at me at the top of his voice. And that was the moment I thought, I can't go back. Because here's a person who is ostensibly defending God, because I was talking in synagogue, by humiliating me. Right. And he got it backwards. Because the way you defend God is not by humiliating people, but by loving people, as I said earlier. And that was the last time I could go to synagogue. And I, I'm assuming that was the straw. Yeah, that was the straw. But I, it, was, it, was, it was everything else on top of that. But when I was so humiliated by that person, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I remember the next Friday, yes. like I just could not go home for Shabbat. I couldn't do it. And I was in my car, and I just could not find a way of going home. It was too oppressive. I felt if I go home, I would explode. So I was really? dry, And I, I remember when the sun, sundown was coming, and I thought the world's gonna come to an end because I was driving on Shabbat, yes. and it rained a little bit, but nothing else happened. <laughs> but it was, it was, and you know, it's interesting because I look back on it now, and in many ways, I miss that that sunset that comes when you restrict yourself from certain activities, and where you have carved out that island in time that Rabbi Abram Joshua Heschel calls. Nicely said. Calls I, I feel the same. I way. miss that, but I still cannot go back to the way. I was raised because it was so restrictive. And by the way, I'm not re- I'm not blaming my parents. It was the culture, and um, the way we need to teach Judaism and any religion is a joyful, positive, yeah, no enthusiastic, no upbeat, question. And that was not the way we shared. I, it I with think, me. by the way, it's safe to say that Judaism orthodoxy has evolved oh, since we gave it up. Oh, <laughs> it, I, it seems to me there's a lot of kids who are actually enjoying. Certainly aspects of it. I now. would say had I been raised in a modern yes. orth- Orthodox yeah. Judaism environment, there might still be a chance that I'd still be practicing right. modern Orthodox Judaism, even if I didn't believe philosophically in all its tenets. So, so, so Ellie, I gave up Orthodoxy, th- thanks to you, by the way. I gave up a kidding. 
I'm kidding. That's okay. <laughs> I gave up more than I got Oxy. big shoulders. I know. I felt I felt stifled. I I mean, I was the only uh, son of a rabbi, as you know, and yeah, I wasn't enjoying it. I wasn't enjoying life for similar reasons as, as you have. But I, I remember the very first time that it that I realized, man, alive, this is not who where I was before. Like things have really changed. I was at my friend David's wedding in Detroit. And he would not make me an aide. He would not make me a witness to the legalities of getting married. There's a the marriage contract. Marriage contract. And I was so hurt. Um, and I tried not to victimize myself. And I tried not to accuse him. In other words, that's where he comes from now. And, and I made my decisions. I've left that. But by the way, to this day, there are certain places that I go on the Sabbath where when they're saying the uh, prayers after they eat, they will not give me the few short blessings to say the Rabotai Nevarech, where you lead the rest of the group, um, ever, ever. So they kind of remind you that you're not part of that culture that Weltanschau that overview and that was extremely painful I felt as though I was on the outside looking in for a long time until I really developed my community within Tikkun Olam through Via Hafta through repairing the world do, do you remember was there a backlash to you were you criticized were your parents called by rabbis oh. were you dumped on for your decisions well it was very hard to leave I mean you know part of the part of um Part of the challenge is that the community I came from did not really dignify dissent. Right. And there was a right and a wrong. There was a black and a white. And it wasn't like, okay, you happen to believe differently. God bless you. It wasn't like that. And Much so, luck. Yeah. So it was very hard to leave. And, and part of that was not knowing, you know, not knowing the customs of the outside world. Yeah. Not knowing, you know... What people wore different clothing. People had different expressions. Had people, you been with girls? Had you? Been, no, uh, of course not. Never. I, I never. I never spoken to to a girl longer than thirty seconds. Yeah. It was. It was. It was a very scary world. I remember when I was in Israel, I used to go to the bank, and I was terrified of the bank teller because she yeah. was about my age, and I just was terrified of saying even hello to her because it was like, like we weren't taught anything negative about women. We weren't taught anything. Period. It was like like it was people from Mars. It yeah. was absolutely scary. And I, I mean, I, I just tell you a funny story about that. I remember I was in Israel and I went to, and I'd never danced with a woman in my life. And I went to a big dinner. It was some kind of big, I don't I can't remember what the function was, but like a hundred people sitting at a table in a lot. Right. And I'm sitting there and I just, you know, I, 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 I just recently left orthodoxy. I was still fresh. And all of a sudden, this belly dancer comes out. <laughs> Did I ever tell you this story? No, you haven't. This belly dancer comes out. Okay, so I'm already embarrassed, right? Right. And I what, still get embarrassed by belly dancers. And what does she do? Yeah. Of the hundred people, what happens? What she do you comes think? over to she you. She comes right up to me and starts motioning to me, and I, I just <laughs> well, I did put my hands up. No thank you. She motions again. No thank you. And I just ran. I ran out of the. I ran out of the. Oh, room. did you? I ran out. I was so embarrassed, and I ran out onto the, onto the deck, and there was, was overlooking the ocean. I went. Phew, yeah. And two seconds later, she's after screaming at me, what's wrong with you? Well, oh, you, really? you, you, you she said, my grandfather's a chief rabbi of Morocco, and how yeah, dare yeah, you yeah. insult me? They always me like are, that? aren't they? Yeah, they're always the chief rabbi somewhere. <laughs> I said, Tunisia. I, I said, yeah. I'm not insulting. I just have never danced. I was so embarrassed. I right. was just so embarrassed. I didn't know what to I, I, uh, And to this day, I don't really, I've never, I don't really, I just never grew up with that kind kind of kind of experience and and so it was very hard breaking out of that learning different customs i remember once i was invited to someone's house for dinner 
So I, you know, dinner was at like six thirty or seven o'clock, yeah. and then we had dessert around eight fifteen or something. And then um, I, I said, "Oh, thank you very much. What are you? I'm going to a movie. Well, we invite you for dinner." I said, "Well, I finished dinner. <laughs> I didn't realize that dinner meant the whole evening." Yes. But you come from a different culture. You don't understand what you know what all the social cues are and what all the norms are. So. It, um, you know, it, it was a hard transition, and um, but I, I felt I had no choice. Had I stayed in, in that world, I literally or figuratively or metaphorically would have exploded because I was, I was living a life I didn't believe in, and we need to be true to ourselves. And if that means becoming ultra-Orthodox, great. If that means becoming humanist, that also, that's also great. Did you take your kippah off over time, or did it come right off? No, it, that, it, it came off. Uh, and you remember that day? Well, that was the day when I drove the car. You took your keep off at that yeah, point. Yeah, I wasn't going to drive a car with my keep on on the Sabbath, right? That would have looked kind of strange, right? right, right. So I started wearing a baseball hat, you know, originally. So. How, how was your mom with all this? She's a lovely human being. And she, she loves you deeply. Yeah. The beautiful thing about your mom, by the way, is how she accepts you for who you are. I, I, think, I think she... My mother is a remarkable person. She really is. Because she personifies a very famous Hasidic story where the guy comes to the, the, the founder of a Hasidic movement, the Baal Shem Tov, the master of the good name. This is in the 1700s. Baal Shem Tov, yes. And the man says to the Baal Shem Tov, my son is drifting away from Judaism. Then you must love your son. He comes back a few months later. He's drifted away even further. Then you must love your son even more. And my mother innately yeah. has that kind of attitude. You know, you know I get, get up every morning. My, my morning ritual is I feed my squirrels. Okay. Yeah. And it's come to the point where they, they know they're waiting for me. They're all waiting for me because that, and I also feed the birds, right? <laughs> yeah. And that that com, that kind of just kindness for the sake of kindness is something I think I learned from my mother. In fact, I was just thinking of story driving over here. You know, when uh, we were living in uh, Bonacourt Street, which is uh, just south of Bathurst Manor, and there was a problem with a squirrel infestation in my in my in our house. So my father called the whoever the person that does the exterminator, and he um, he sealed up the hole where the squirrels g got in and out, and that was fine until what happened? Guess what happened? The mother squirrel showed up. Yes, and um, and um, she was making a racket because she couldn't get her baby squirrels. Yeah, squirrels are loud. Very yeah, loud. Yes. so and, and she was very loud if you can't get uh, your appropriately children. Appropriately so, and if you can't get your children, especially yeah, right? you would chirp loud. Yeah, so she. So, she. so um, um, my father didn't know what to do, but my mother called back the exterminator and she got him to unpatch it. And then I never forget my mother told me, she says she watched the, the mother squirrel take one squirrel at a time across on the wire to the other side. Yeah. And she was so proud of what she did that, you know, she, but she had that maternal instinct and that, that inherent kindness that even when I left Judaism, of course she would have preferred that I stayed, but her her love for me and her 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 love for humanity, I think, is as important as her adherence to tradition, which is also very important to her. Our, our dads were very religious men. Yes. They both since passed away. Yes. Uh, your fat father was a Talmudic uh, scholar as well. Someone who learned all the time, used to go up to the school that we attended, the private yeah. Jewish school on a nightly basis. And my father was a rabbi. I, is it safe to say I know in my case my father did not take it well we rarely ever talked about it because that's how we dealt with our problems and um, to the day that he died it was just there was a huge schism there was a huge uh, separation 
between us. How, how did your dad deal with your situation? I, was, I, I can't remember. It was Dostoevsky, some famous literary person, said all happy families are the same, but all sad families are different, right? Oh, I just heard that tonight. Yes, yeah. I, it was Dostoevsky. So um, I, I didn't really, I didn't really have the greatest relationship with my father. Um, he was just a very distant person. He was not a warm and fuzzy kind of person. And I'm not criticizing, but just who he was. So I didn't have a close relationship in my teen years with him. And I think it wouldn't have made a difference if he was religious or not religious. It was just who he was. Yes. He was just a distant person. So um, we never even had any conversations about it because right. he, he w w there wasn't that personal connection. Now, now I regret not trying to get mm. him kn to know him a bit more and to try to find, it, uh, find out what made him tick. But, but it wasn't that emotional because we didn't have an emotional bond in the first place. Can you imagine how much we must have disappointed our fathers? Yes. Uh, I know I did. Yes. No, like the poor guy. He was a rabbi. He gave everything he could to the Jewish people yes. through an Orthodox filter and guise. And then along comes his only son. Like I've come to this recognition um, pretty recently. I was yeah. always, you know, dumping on my father. But now I realize the poor guy, man, I'm a dad. I have a 12 year old child uh -huh. and you want your child to be a certain way. You just do. Yeah. Right. With, with all this talk about let them be who they are and so on and so forth. We have our own values and we want our children to grow mm -hmm. up within that system very often um so i feel bad for my dad now how about you I, again it, it, my, my dad was quite distant so i don't think my dad thought in those terms i think he he was living his own life he was doing his own rituals he was doing his own practices he was doing he was going to study every day and i think on some level he of course would have wanted me to stay religious but it wasn't something he he thought about a lot do you remember so. your first date no first I don't. time you went out with a woman no i do not or hung out with a woman I don't. <laughs> How's it going so far? <laughs> it's really tough. Isn't I'm still it? looking for my first date now. <laughs> you are. I have somebody yeah, for you. Yeah, it 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 it, it it's it, tough. It it's tough if you don't grow up with the right. opposite sex to to figure out. I mean, now I'm in a much better place, but it it was that was that was a really it, the, the the problem with my upbringing as well is nobody talked about right. any kinds of changes that you're happening to your body. No one talked about what was okay, what was right. not okay. I don't want to get get into too many details because it is a very sensitive subject. But there was a lot of stuff going on in, in the community at that time that that doesn't go on today, thank God. Yes. And no one was telling you what was right and was wrong. And no. so you were you were lost. And things happened that shouldn't have happened to me. But you know um, things are changing, and that's good. But but I it, it, it was not a healthy time. At, during the drawing era of growing up. I, I tell you what was great. Okay, we were in yeshiva together, the private uh, Jewish school, um, and we lived in the dormitory. So for all intents and purposes, we were together 24 hours a day, very often seven days a week. Sometimes we'd go home on the weekends. From that point of view, it was a blast. I, I, I remember uh, us going down. We would go down and play hockey, you know, in the field below and have a wonderful time. And I felt just socially hanging out with the guys was um, was really great. Yeah, and I, I know I, when Gretzky retired, they asked him what he's going to miss the most, and he said the camaraderie in the dressing room. Did, did you do you have that feeling? Yes, but I really wish I would have had more better. Yeah. moral... Like some of my teachers were amazing, but overall, I remember, I think I told you the story once, there was one, I don't want to mention the person's name, so I'll make up a name. One of the kids in our class, in grade grade eight and nine was was developmentally disabled right and let's say his name was david now he actually might have been intellectually okay i have no idea but he, he obviously had a physical disability yeah. and a di difficult ability of speaking about him speaking and difficult 
difficult writing, and we were merciless. We made such fun of him, yeah, I know. such fun of him. And I look back on it I now, know. and I'm so ashamed of myself. In fact, I bumped into him at a bank about five, six years ago, and I apologized to him, and he was very gracious about it. He very was? Very gracious, yes. But well, I wish... What did you say to him? I said, listen, I'm so sorry the way we treated you. I was a kid. I didn't know any better, and I, I really hope that you can forgive me. He says, don't, even, don't, don't worry about it. And, and he seemed to be genuine about it. But I wish an adult would have taken me by the hand yes. and said to me, Ellie, do you realize what it must feel to be like to be him? Do you not have any empathy for what he's going through? And, and later on, I did, I did learn. I did, I did find texts in both Jewish sources and, and non-Jewish sources, secular sources, that taught me that empathy. But I really wish there was an adult who would have stressed that. And I guess my, the greatest criticism I have for my upbringing is that is that for me, I look at Judaism in a completely different way than my ultra-Orthodox environment did. For me, and I say this all the time, mm -hmm. 2,000 years ago, the rabbis asked the following question. What are the most important commandments in the Torah? And they gave four answers. Love your neighbor as yourself. One answer, Rabbi Akiva. Second answer is Hillel. Don't do unto others what you don't want others to do to you. Yes. Third answer is given by Ben Azai, which is, that all humanity is created in the image of God with infinite equality and dignity. And the fourth answer is given by, I, I think it's an anonymous group of rabbis, that the most important commandment is love the stranger because you're one stranger in the land of Egypt. Yes. 36 times, the most commonly repeated commandment in the Torah. What we learned from that simple line I just gave you is that an essence of Judaism is being kind and compassionate and loving to other people. Of course the rituals are important. Of course the rabbis want you to keep Shabbat and keep kosher and all those things. Absolutely. But if you're not a mensch, if you don't treat your fellow human beings with dignity and respect, the rest doesn't matter. If you yeah. look if you look at the book of I if you look at look at the prophets, they talk about a hypocrite. A hypocrite is somebody who practices the rituals but does not practice the ethics. But somebody practices the ethics and doesn't practice the rituals, he or she's not a hypocrite. They're deficient. And that for me was so troubling. And there's a very famous phrase that I learned but it wasn't practiced as much as it should have been, is derech eretz Torah. Being a mensch, being, being a kind, decent, good human being comes before anything else. Once you've got that, then you can do anything else. And, and, and you I, know, so I, that was, that's what was missing from my upbringing. The criticism of what you're saying is that people will say, Ellie's only looking at the bad side of stuff. And I actually think you're being very fair here. Um, we have a friend who actually attended someone's funeral, a young man passed away, to apologize to him at the gravesite because he had treated him very badly in school as well, right? Mm -hmm. There's nothing worse than humiliation. Um, someone who's very close to me was in Israel and he attended a class uh, which he was very excited about with a famous rabbi and at some point, the, the rabbi looked at him for whatever reason, and he started maligning him for something, maybe the way he was dressed or wearing a baseball hat or something, and he uh, embarrassed him in front of all of the students. This stuff stays with you. So while it may not be the thing that pushes you out the door, it's certainly one of those things where you say, as you said before, hey, this is a, a life system. It's something you do all day long. It's something which you are loyal to on a regular basis. If you're not learning decency from it, if you have the ability to humiliate a child or a young person, there's something not right here. Yeah, and, and, by, and by the way, 
one of the things I learned is no matter what religious system you're going right. to engage in, you're still right. going to find those same problems. It's not unique to ultra-Orthodox Judaism. I mean, you're just reminding me of a story which I think I've shared with you before, but it was, again, one of those moments that you'll never forget. Everyone has irrational fears, right? Yes. My irrational fear, and I've never done this, I've never ever done this, never have the desire to do it, is that I will leave a store and all of a sudden be accused of shoplifting. Yeah, no, I have that too. Right. Yeah, uh, but you actually do it. No, I have, yes. <laughs> so, um, you watch me when I leave your home, so, by the way. Exactly. <laughs> Check the cutlery drawers. Yeah. So, um, you know, so I'm always, I'm another irrational fear is I'm going to go to a store and, and agree to buy something and I won't have money in my pocket, right? Yeah. So these, these are, whatever. So there's this irrational fear. Interesting but, fear, by the way. Yeah. Yes. So I remember I was in Israel and my roommate was a Baal Tshuva. He had just become religious quite recently, Okay. And we were in the store together, and I, I was, I think, 18 or 19 years of age. You know when you're younger and you've got, you know, you're, you're hungry, like, you just, just like rip into anything. You yeah, just I had got, that with my son. Okay, so you just like, you know, you just, you're like, like, a, like a Labrador. Thousands of calories a, a day. A Labrador retriever, just <laughs> chomping things down. So we went to the store together, and I got myself a chocolate milk, one of those plastic bags, and a, and a, and a, a bun of some kind, and I was just wolfing it down. And when we get to the cash register... And he's right behind me, and I put my hand in my pocket, and guess what? No money. No money. I realize I left my wallet up in the room. So I say to the guy, I say, I'll make up a name again. I don't want to identify him. I say, Jonathan, can you do me a small favor? Can you just lend me 20 shekels, which was like, I don't know, five, six bucks, and I'll pay back in five minutes when we go up to the, our room together? He said, no. And he, by the way, he came from a very wealthy family. I said, what do you mean? He said, no, I'm not lending any money. I said, Jonathan, just for five, and he wouldn't lend it to me. Yeah, that's the worst. And there I was. So, so think of this for a moment. The Torah specifically says that you sh it's a positive commandment to lend somebody money. It's right. a positive commandment. The Torah also, also, it's, it's also, the rabbis teach us that embarrassing somebody in public is like murder. Mm -hmm. And here he was, not doing any of those things, but embarrassing me in public, not lending money because, because somehow he was learning that not turning a light on Shabbat now that would have been terrible. This is not so terrible. Yes. So unfortunately, that was the messaging back then. I, I hope it is not like that anymore. But as I said, I, I'm, I'm not as critical as I once was because I, I think all societies and all cultures and all religious movements have that problem with ritual. Because if you get rid of ritual, you lose all the structure and the vehicle of transmitting the tradition. But if you have a ritual, sometimes the ritual becomes more important than the, the, than, than the compassion and the kindness. I mean, one of my the stories that was most, most influenced me was by Yudlam and Peretz, who was talking about his mother hosting a group of rabbis um, who would come to the house. And they were washing their hands for the meal. And each one was washing their hands more than the other to prove that they were holier than the other rabbi. And he was very impressed until he heard his mother mutter under her breath, yeah, they're being extra holy on the shoulders of the poor peasant servant girl mm -hmm. who the more water they use, the more she's got to go into the bitter cold winter and break the ice and bring mm -hmm. the water in. Mm -hmm. And it was such an incredible story because it reminds us that religious piety, go for it. Be as religious as you want. But always ask yourself, what is the impact on the human beings around you? And if it's a negative impact, it's not worth it. And so I think that's what was missing. Not that there's anything wrong with ritual, but always remember there are human beings who count far more than the, the specific ritual that might give meaning and shape and beauty and, to your and, life. And let's go out of our way, too, to be fair here, so that, you know, 
your your windows aren't broken. Um, there's a lot of kindness in the Orthodox community. In fact, the community is really predicated on it giving in. I think insular in an insular way. It stays within the community. Uh, right? I, I will agree with you 100 percent that the 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 ultra orthodox community uh, takes care of uh, their own community. It, no one will go hungry. No one will 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 starve. No be one be without will, a wedding dress. No one will be be alone at a shiva. There is an incredible um, sense of community. I, I I forgot the expression we learned in sociology a thousand years ago at York, whether Gemeinschaft, Gesellschaft. I forgot what it is. Don't tell my professors. But there's an incredible um, ins- not insularity, incredible cocoon of which they will take care of you in 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 many kinds of ways that may be unrivaled, maybe unrivaled. Mm-hmm. But I just wish that there was more of a, a universal outlook, more of a reaching out to the rest of the world, and I wish that that there would be a little more of the ethics and a little less of the ritual, or more ethics and as much ritual as you want. But, but again, there's no system you're going to find that will be perfect. So I've become older and wiser, and I'm less critical now than I was then because I was personally experiencing that, and I think the Orthodox community itself has evolved I think from so the too. time that I was in that community then. So, so you're growing up. You've uh, let go of the Orthodox shackles, if you will, and you're tasting foods. You're going out there and meeting women. Um, you're enjoying life in the way that you want you wanted to, right? By the time you went to college, to university, were you Orthodox or non-Orthodox? I, that's I, w- I was already transitioning. You were transitioning. Now, if I understand, if I remember correctly, the courses you took there, the professors that you had, made a huge made a huge influence on your life, right? Uh, to some extent, I mean, I I I I was already interested in history i was already interested in theology and i was very interested in the holocaust in the holocaust yeah and I'll, the reason for that was i grew up in a world yes where almost all of my parents friends were holocaust survivors my mother herself was a refugee from hungary uh, she fled uh in 1941 and got it just before they closed the border but many of her family members perished many of my teachers had numbers in their arms and i grew up with this scepter this 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 shadow of tremendous inhumanity and cruelty that I couldn't even begin to understand. And so when I entered my university years, like, how could this happen? Why did this happen? Who let this happen? Why didn't the Jews fight back? A lot of really naive questions. How do we make sure it doesn't happen again? Are human beings really that evil? Did we really go like sheep to the slaughter? Again, these are naive questions, um, but I knew very little back then. And um, I made it my mission to study as much as possible about the Holocaust at that time. I read as many books as possible. And um, through that chapter of my life, I started meeting Holocaust survivors who to this day, to this day, inspire me with their courage, with their ability to rebuild the pieces of their lives and um, the amazing things I learned from them. So, you know, I just spoke to a Holocaust survivor last week who told me this beautiful story about her grandfather. His name was Rabbi Resnick. He was a rabbi in Rokitno. And, um, that's in Poland? That's in Poland, yeah. I think it's close to the border of, of Ukraine. And um, maybe it's in Ukraine now. I had to have to check a map. And he was hiding in the forest with his son. And he was near a monastery with... Uh, where a cloister where there were a whole bunch of monks 
and they knew he was in the forest. Yes. And they'd come out every day and they would sing a song to him in their, their usual hymns, but instead of using the, 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 the religious words they used, they would sing words in Polish, which the Nazis didn't understand. Rabbi, come out. We will save you. We will help you. Really? And he wasn't sure because you never knew who could be your friend or your foe. Yes. His son died and he said, I don't care what happens to me. He jumps out of the woods. As soon as the monks see him, they grab him. They grab uh, one of these these brown habits that they wore, cloaks that they wore, and they pulled it over his head, and they said, Rabbi, you're not of the same faith, but you're a holy man, and we will save you just like oh. we'll save our own. Oh, well. And he, they saved his life. And like I, when I tell the story, I say, is there any more beautiful music in the world than th- that music that was sung by those monks? But you hear these stories, and you all of a sudden realize that as terrible as the Holocaust was, yeah. there's another side that's equally shocking in its goodness, yes. in its nobility, in its kindness, in its courage. And as much as the cruelty shocks us to the core, there's another side that is equally important. And so I've l- I learned that in my studies, but I also learned about the courage of the survivors who came here after the war and rebuild their lives and could have given up, could have said, I don't believe in Judaism, I don't believe in humanity, I don't believe in, I don't believe in anything. And yet they did not do that. And so I, I've learned from so many survivors about the ability to overcome adversity and no matter what, never give up hope in the meaning of life. And that was very inspiring. To Years me. ago, I wrote an article about uh, Holocaust survivors dancing at the weddings of their children or at their grandchildren's bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. Yes. And you think, my God, what an inimitable spirit that yes. is. Yes. How do you do that coming from Auschwitz where you see a family member yeah. uh, burnt to death? Yeah. And, it's, and, I'll, and I'll tell you something else. Many of the survivors, maybe not all of them, but the ones I dealt with, also have a tremendous universal approach to life. What I mean by that is they take their experience. And I'll give you one story that reflects that. This is Dennis Erstein, whose funeral I did many years ago. He was a survivor of Auschwitz, didn't speak about the Holocaust, very imposing, dignified, you know, impressive man. And one day he goes to the doctor and uh, the nurse rolls down his sleeve and sees a number in his arm from Auschwitz. And she says, what's that? He says, well, don't tell anybody, especially not my wife in the waiting room. It's my girlfriend's telephone number. <laughs> she says, really? And he says, oh my gosh. And that's when he started talking about the Holocaust. He testified to the Ernst Zundel trial. And he became a very, very big speaker at the Holocaust Center. But the story he, he, he shared with me, which I told at his funeral, it's, it's an incredible story. He was born Adolf Erstein in Vienna. Um, he almost didn't survive. Almost his entire family was murdered. And when the war was over, he was liberated by American troops. And the American officer liberated him and says, Adolf, we can't call you that for obvious reasons. We're going to change your name to something with a D, Dennis. Yes. And so that's what he became, Dennis Erstein. I think he was like 17 or 18 at the time, very handsome young man. And he was having the time of his life. And I think at one point they said, what do you, what, what do you miss most about your previous life? I love jazz. We're going to take you to a jazz club. So there's Dennis sitting with these American soldiers in a jazz club. He is just having the time of his life. And he's thinking, you know, just months ago, I was cl- crawling through mud. Didn't think I was going to survive. Yeah, and all of a sudden, another American soldier walked into the bar into the club and these other soldiers who he was with who saved him who gave him his new life jumped on him and beat beat, beat him to a pulp this Oi. other soldier Oi. and he ran away he was so frightened by what happened so a few, few months later the American officer sees him Dennis what's going on where'd you disappear to you know you're our buddy you like it was like their mascot we're, we're taking care of him. we gave you a new life where'd you disappear to we're your yeah. friends yeah. Says, no you're not my friends you can never be my friends well, why because when you did what you did in that bar when you jumped on that American soldier, 
and beat him so badly only for one reason because he was black that's why they're beating him up because he was a black soldier you showed me you were no different than the nazis well racism is racism is racism right. i'm not sure he said those words but that's what the intention and with that he turned his back on the people liberate him gave him a new life and a name because he would not stand for intolerance and i find that with the survivors that they are not just concerned about anti-Semitism, they're concerned about the world. And that is so uplifting and liberating and important for us to remember. I tell you, an, a couple of years ago, I took Nate Leipziger, who was a survivor, as well as an activist, to uh, visit the Pasumas, who were a Roma family. Yes, I remember uh, that. In sanctuary and hiding. And I was sitting in that room with the Pasumas and with Nate Leipziger, and I tell you, I had chills up and down uh, my back, my arms, my entire body, thinking about the significance of, of uh, what was going on at that very moment. Here was this family, this Roma family, who were in hiding from our government. Because if they were caught, they would be sent back to Hungary. And neo-Nazis were actually looking for them. Um, and through the gracious, the generosity of the Windermere Church and Alexa Gilmore, who was the previous uh, interview in Hat Radio, uh, they were hidden, as our people were. Along comes Nate Leipziger, and he says, of course I want to visit them, and of course I will speak about uh, their lives and what they're going through. And indeed he did, and there was a symbiosis there. There was a relationship between the two that I actually couldn't get into because I hadn't gone through what they had gone through. But uh, they weren't Jewish. <laughs> it didn't matter to him. They were good folk who were trying to find freedom like we all are, are, and that's what he focused on. Yeah, I was amazed at their sense of universalism so, as well. So many of the survivors are, are Holocaust survivors, but also educators. And Nate, I mean, there's a quote in my book, my last book, where, where someone, one of the students asked him, don't you hate the people who did this terrible thing to the Jews? And he says, I don't hate, because hate destroys the one who does the hating. I hold them responsible, I don't hate. What, what wise words. So, so, so let me ask you about this, Ellie, yeah. and then I want to move into your later years. Yeah. How do you digest? How do you take the stories? I stopped reading mm -hmm. about the Holocaust almost pretty much after I started reading about it. I've never seen Schindler's List. I don't want to have that stuff in my head. Granted, I was raised on a very high level of empathy. We had people who were living in our home, and my parents would take care of uh, the stranger amongst us in a very big way. You know, we, you and I have had this talk. I don't need to go to Auschwitz to know what happened and to see the, the, the shoes and the teeth and all that. I, I know what happened and I can feel it. I can sense it. Mm -hmm. But you like have read so many books on it and attended so many lectures and met so many survivors. Like I can't hear a story about Mengele's uh, and, and how he did experiments on people whom we know. How do you, how do, you do that? Well, I, this is what I say. I have studied the Holocaust now for the better part of 30 years. And as much as I study it, I will never understand it. And perhaps that's a good thing. I can't understand yeah. the cruelty. I mean, one of the stories that I often tell is about this, uh, I think her name is Gina Reutemann, who discovered that when her mother told her all those years, I saved your life by having you born in the, by giving birth to you in the hospital in the town, not in the DP camp near the town, Save your life. She didn't know what she meant until she went back to the DP camp and found that a German nurse, I think the years 46 and 47, had strangled to death 52 Jewish babies. <laughs> think of this. The war is over. Hitler yeah. is dead. Germany's ruined. 60 million people have lost their lives. And this nurse, this midwife who's dedicated, is strangling. I'll never, under, I'll never, and I don't want to understand it. Yeah. But 
as much as I'll never understand the answer to that question, how did it happen, why did it happen, there's another question which is far more important to ask, and that is how do we respond? And the answer to that question is we build the exact opposite of the world the Nazis wanted to build. They wanted to build a world of endless hatred, of endless divisiveness, of endless hostility and suspicion. We will b build a world of endless love, of blind love, of kindness and goodness and compassion. So I'll never answer the first question. How, why? I can, can never understand that. But the second question of how do we respond, and that leads me to my, one of my favorite quotes from Nachman Breslin, which you know, who says, if you believe the world can be broken, yeah, you can believe it. Also, believe can it can be fixed, and so that—that's how I, I I work through it. When somebody's telling you a story about what they had gone through, do you listen and take it in, or do you shut down? No, I, I listen and take it in, but I always look for, I always look for that moment of hope. You know, I, I you know, I met this survivor, and he, he told me it was an incredible. I said, "Can you give me a moment of of, of, of uh, kindness?" And he told me, and it's an, just an, it's tiny, but it's exceptional. He was in Auschwitz. And one day, and I heard, I heard the brutal stories already. One day, the Nazis say, you come off your labor battalion and take these turnips into the kitchen. So he takes turnips into the kitchen, and he hides, I think, seven or eight turnips in his pants. Yes. I said, what'd you do with them? He was risking his life, so I expect him to say that he ate them. No, he shared them with his fellow prisoners. I said to him, you're starving to death. You're being brutalized and crushed, and you're thinking of sharing with your fellow prisoners? Why'd yeah. you do that? He said, because I knew they were just as hungry as I was. Yeah. So think of that for a moment, that here he is in the pits of the universe, in the depths of despair, and he's still thinking about his fellow prisoners. So I find, I think it was Dr. Naomi Azraeli who once said, nobody survived the Holocaust without the help of another. Yes. Could have been a, it could have been a, a slice of bread, it could have been a hiding place, a pair of shoes, it could even have been a kind glance. So that's what I do, even amidst all the horror, I try to find those moments of nobility and courage and, and kindness because if I didn't, then I would give up. I would become a misanthrope and I'd try to move to another planet. But how there you, are moments like that. How do you think you would have done in Auschwitz? Oh, I don't think I would have survived. Because? For, I just don't think, I, I, th I think, I think I would have been, I, I don't think I would have, I hope I wouldn't have acted in, in a cruel fashion, but I don't think I could have survived more than a few days. I don't think I would have had the fortitude the emotional or physical fortitude to survive what those people went through. It, it, every every survivor I meet, I, 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 it just boggles my mind. I remember when I, I went to Maidanik once with a group, and it was in the winter. We've never done, done any more groups in the winter. Maidanik my my being a concentration. concentration camp. And it was, I believe it was December, and I didn't take a hat with me. And I was out in the cold, fully dressed, with boots and with gloves and with a hat, uh, without a hat, but everything else, a right? A warm jacket. A warm jacket, everything. So I remember I was there, and um, I thought in the half an hour that I was without a hat, my head was going to explode. Yes. So, so think of this for a moment. I'm in my Danik for half an hour, and I thought my ears were going to actually freeze off. I've never been so much pain in my life. Yeah. And I was fully dressed, fully clothed, Except for my hat, I was g given all the food I needed to have. I was in an emotionally supportive environment. And these people survived for years yeah, being beaten and malnourished and without proper clothes. Like, it's beyond belief how, that ha how they did that. So I, I, I will say I don't think I'd, I could have survived for more than a few days. No, so, no false humility there. So the years pass. And uh, you go through university. You get your degree. You're ensconcing yourself in Holocaust studies. Um, 
you started teaching a lot of bar mitzvah, right? Yeah. You're, you're kind of known for that, aren't you? Like the Pied Piper of the bar and bat mitzvah kids in the city? Uh, you know, Like everyone I speak to, you know, Ellie? Oh, yeah, I know. Ellie was my bat mitzvah teacher. Like everybody. Yeah, well, Stephen Page, I taught bar mitzvah. Right, bare naked ladies. What's yeah. your joke about that? You have a joke about. Well, that. I always say that the reason he's he's so incredibly successful is because my bar mitzvah teaching, and he never ever credits me. Come on, you know, Stephen once actually he did once I think at a concert. I think the Hafta event he did thank me. But you have a joke about it, don't you? From what a lyric from his song. I don't remember. Oh uh, yeah, we'll have to remember. It's a okay. funny one. Yeah. Um, who, who else did you teach, by the way? Well, I, I, almost everywhere I go, like I just did a funeral today and, uh, you know, the, the, I go go to Benjamin's and I'm sitting in the, I go, go into the waiting room and I meet the family members. Oh, uh, what's your name? Aaron. Aaron Lindzen. Aaron, do you remember me? I taught you bar mitzvah for 30 years. Oh, my God. So almost everywhere I go, I bump into. Do you remember the kids always? M- most of them, yes. Most yeah? of them. Yeah. Yeah, I I never forget traumatic experiences. Just kind of. and, <laughs> that's and, why they don't remember in you. In fact, in fact, one of the, one of the most important experiences happened to me teaching bar mitzvah, and this kind of informed a lot of my Jewish path. I was teaching kids at Temple Sinai, and when I started teaching, right at the beginning, right at the beginning, I was a strict teacher. Like not like my teachers in school, you know, slap you around or whatever. Did they hit you with a rule in school? Or? I in Israel, of course they did. Yeah. yeah. But I, you know, I would never, never physically abusive. But I was like tough, and if the kids didn't learn their portion, I'd get frustrated, and I'd get angry at them, and I would criticize them, and, and I would say you weren't practicing, you're never gonna. And I would be just very, very critical, in a not positive way. I didn't, I hadn't yet read Janusz Korczak, the famous humanist who who taught how we must love children and give them the wings to fly and give them complete respect and compassion and kindness. I hadn't yet learned that part of right. of, of my world philosophy. Right. And one day, um, and one day, um, um, one of the mothers of the two kids, I was teaching twins, comes and says, I'd like to speak to you. So she brings me out into the hallway, and she says to me, you know, my children, they're not having any joy from your lessons. Oh, she told you this. She told me that. And I said to myself, joy? <laughs> what was that thing from Oliver? You want to have some more pudding? Yeah, is that yeah, what it yeah. is, right? Some more? <laughs> Yeah. Joy? What are you talking about? Yeah, joy, joy doesn't fit into this. Who ever talked about joy when I was being... T- and, 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 but of course, I didn't say anything. And I went home and said, she's right. Yeah. Like, if I am teaching the kids their bar mitzvahs and they learn their portions off by heart but hate me and hate Judaism and hate religion, what have I achieved? Right. Let them right. learn a little less and be a little more joyful. And by the way, I mean, there's I, I met, uh, there's another incredible story that, that ties into this. I, mean, I did a funeral for a woman a few, a few years ago she was a Holocaust survivor, and her daughter was her name. Her name is Susie. She let, lets me tell the story, so I can use her name, Susie. And she told me that before her, um, before her mother died, she said to me, "Susie, you are my eyes." I said, "I said, what does she mean by that? You are my eyes." She said, "Here's the story. When I was a little girl, people made fun of me in the playground. They said I was adopted. I didn't know that." So I ran home crying to my mother. My mother said, my father, my father refused to speak to me about it, so my mother took me upstairs and she pulled up her dress and she showed me the scar in her stomach from Mengele. Yes. She said, I couldn't have children, so that's why I adopted you, right? I said, okay, but what did she mean, you were my eyes? She said, my parents were, were broken by the Holocaust. They had lost their faith in everything, literally. And all of a sudden, I came along. This little blonde-haired girl, all I wanted to do was be in the sunshine and skip rope and make friends. And all of a sudden, I gave my parents the ability to look at life anew again. Yes, very good. And she said, 
That's what you meant. You were my eyes. And I always think of that story. Excellent. Like when you see children, remember, all they want to do is enjoy life, have That's a good it. time, exactly. breathe fresh air, play with puppies. Like, let's not burden them. They'll Beautiful. grow up soon enough. I always think of that story. And I wish, I wish someone had shared that story with my teachers. So yeah. when my son was around seven or eight, friends of mine instructed me that I should start teaching him about the Holocaust. And I said, no. And I barely touched upon it at his age now, which is 12 years old, because of exactly what you're saying. There is a lot of time in life to learn about the injustices perpetrated against our people and perpetrated in the Campuchians and the Roma, etc., etc., etc. My son will have a lot of time to hear about that terrible stuff. And I want him to play. Exactly like you're saying. Of course, you know what's going to happen when your son grows up. What's that? Oh, I wish my dad had taught me much earlier about <laughs> yeah, these that's things. Okay. That's okay. I'm willing to live through that. But honestly, Elliot, yeah. I saw the pristine nature of a child. Yeah. The beautiful nature of a child. I said, go out and play. I'm not going to teach Holocaust. But it's bizarre because when we were growing up, someone told me that they went to a camp where one of the night activities was the Nazis were chasing the children. It was sort of like a, a, a German sort of capture the flag. Right? That's what we grew up on, right? And do you remember the films they showed us when sure, we were younger? Sure, sure. Uh, a bit too young, no? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that, I think, was a consequence of who your teachers were as well and who were running well, the schools. And they were, they were survivors. And they were traumatized themselves. They were traumatized themselves. Yeah. And and mu much worse than we can imagine. So anyways, so you move on. You're a bar mitzvah teacher, a bat mitzvah teacher. Things grow. Um, and ultimately... Um, you you actually went to Habonim. You got a job offer at Congregation Habonim. Yes. And it's a really interesting, interesting synagogue because it was started by survivors. Yes. Okay. The and, first and, the first synagogue in Canada found by Holocaust survivors. Right. That's true. And they offer you the job ultimately and you take it, right? Yes. So what was it firstly, what was it that that uh, seduced you? What 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 took you to the shul? Well, I wasn't really interested at the beginning. What happened was I was teaching Bar Mitzvah Temple Sinai and the family got into a fight with a rabbi, which never happens of course. Of and course. so they went to 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 Habanim to have the Bar Mitzvah. And the boy, his, his name was Daniel, um, you know, like he didn't know anybody there. So the parents said, Would you come to the synagogue and you know, help him on the bima just because he 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 does, he'd never been to the synagogue doesn't know anybody. I said, sure, let me call the rabbi. I called the rabbi. I said, is it okay if I stand on the bima, which is the stage where the kid reads the Torah from, the child reads the Torah from? Can I stand next to him and just and, you know, make sure he feels comfortable? The rabbi said, sure, I have no problem. By the way, I'm leaving in a few months anyway, so yeah, well, that's fine. I said, okay, so I did that. And after the service was over, this man Gangoff Herman, is a Holocaust survivor, comes to me and says, would you like to be the rabbi of the synagogue? I said, <laughs> did he really? Yeah. I said, no. He says, why not? I said, I'm not a rabbi. And I'd, I have no intention of being one. Right. And somehow he got my number and would not, he kept calling me. Wow. The synagogue was actually dying. The rabbi was leaving and they had like 80 families in or something. Who was something. the rabbi? It was Rabbi Alan Wiener who took over from Rabbi Ruben Slonim who's a very and controversial there's a story, rabbi. There's a whole show there, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. Another, another story. It's for another time, another right. interview if you're ever having back. And, um, not. And, um, and um, he kept calling me and I said, Mr. Herman, I get up in the morning, I look in the mirror, and I laugh at myself. I don't take myself seriously. Why should anybody else? And besides, I grew up with people telling me what to do. You think I want to do anybody else? Very good. And finally, the last conversation, I, I can't give it to you verbatim, but it was something along the lines, this is a synagogue founded by Holocaust survivors. Our synagogue is dying, and if you don't help us out, you'll finish off the work that Hitler began. Oh, he, he said this to you? 
Kind of not exactly those words. I just kind of remember that, but it was along those lines. What happened to you? How did you feel? Oh, of course, I felt wonderful. I always wanted someone. <laughs> yeah. To, yeah, exactly. I said, Mr. Herman, I'll come for a few weeks until you find somebody else. Okay, I'm. But I'm telling you, I'm not doing this. And that was 32 years ago, or something, 31 years ago. So what? What made it stick? So what happened was. And by the way, I showed up at the first service with with je- in jeans and a T-shirt or whatever it was. It was like, you ever see the life of Brian? The yeah. Messiah, the Messiah, yeah. the young person arrived because I was in my late twenties at the time. Yeah, you were kind of weirder than me. Like you'd come late all the time and so on. Yeah. So so um um, what what happened was I was going through my own re- religious evolution. So what happened was I'd abandoned religion, right? I'd given it all up, and then I was struggling with well, if I'm giving up religion, what's going to take its place? Yeah. Right. And you know, just just hedonism wasn't going to work for me. So um, I read a book by Roger Kamenetz where basically he said the following. All religions contain profound truth, profound wisdom, profound beauty. Again, I'm not quoting verbatim, but these are the, this is a sentiment. But also profound mistakes. And that was like a neon light flashing that set me free. And once I read that, I said, oh, now I can actually go back to being Jewish. Because... When, that, when the Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself, and the Torah says, be kind to the widow, the orphan, the poor, take care of the stranger, justice, justice shall you pursue, great. When the Torah or the rabbis were not so pro-women or, 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 or gay rights, not so great. But the truth is, had I lived thousands of years ago, I would have thought the same thing. Yes. Because um, for me, Judaism is man's effort, or I should say humanity's effort, to understand what God wants from us. And sometimes we get it right, sometimes we don't. So... Can I be critical of the fact that thousands of years ago they had values that we, we that, that they didn't have values we have today? Can I be critical of when the is, the Jews were fighting against the Romans that didn't use F-16s? Of course not. They didn't have them. It, yes. It's called presentism. So I can't blame the people thousands of years ago for not having the same values and ethical understandings that we had back then. But today I've come to the conclusion that we can. So, so that's how I, that's how the synagogue evolved. For me, it was let's choose the best and evolve out the rest. But in addition to that, the services were structured in a way that spoke to where people's hearts are, which meant that the service was all sung. Virtually everything in the service is sung. There's no, like, just repetition of words that people don't understand. By the way, if people want to do that, that's fine. It works for certain communities, but our community, virtually the entire yeah, service is You brought sung. your love of music to the yes, synagogue. exactly. We've had the most incredible cantors. Our L- first let me stop you for one sure. sec, okay? Are you a spiritual leader, inherently? I'm the religious leader of congregation. No, in other words, are, is that who, are, have you found over the years that, in fact, yes, I, Ellie Rubenstein, am a spiritual leader by nature? Have you grown into it? Is there some fraud going on? Where are you at with this? Well, I think we've discussed it before. In essence, sometimes many of us feel that, are we really being genuine? Are we really honest? Are we really being true to who we, what we believe in? And Because we have a certain public persona, and I try as much as possible to always connect my public persona with what I'm really feeling deep inside. Yeah, yeah. Of course, I have my moments of doubt, but, but I, it's, it's often we don't recognize who we are until someone tells us who we are. I mean... Very two very very quick stories, and I don't have the dates exactly. But Lanier Phillips was um, uh, a uh, soldier on a U.S. ship that was blown off the coast of Newfoundland in the Second World War. I think it was called the USS Truxton, and they take him to Newfoundland Hospital because he was covered in explosives. Many people died, and they're trying to clean up his body. And he wakes up. So what are you doing? Well, you're in a very bad explosion. We're trying to trying to take take the soot and tar off your body. He says that's not soot and tar. I'm black. Really? The nurses had never met a black person before in Newfoundland, in that place. 
and they apologized to him, but it was an incredible experience for him because they treated him like he was anybody else. The color of his skin made no difference to him. Hey. And all of a sudden he said, hey, where I come from, I so much looked at a white woman, I'd be lynched, and here they're treating me like I'm no different. Yes. And right then he was like lowest on the totem pole. He was like, I don't know, working in the mess hall. He became the first black radar officer in the U.S. Army. Yeah. He marched in the civil rights marches in Selma, and he rose to the ranks. Why? Because somebody from the outside said, yeah. this is yeah. who you are. It's kind of like that Gerda Klein story when she was liberated from the camps by the American soldier. And they're going to one of the barracks. And he says, stop, because she was going to open the door for him. She says, what is it? And he opened the door for her. And she said that gave her back her Honestly. humanity. <laughs> she didn't know she was human because she felt she was so abused. She was so destroyed. She'd internalized the Nazi's view of her. When that soldier opened the door for her, it gave her back her humanity. I didn't realize I was a spiritual leader until people told me I was. And I remember once someone came over to me and says, you know what you, you give us? You give us joy. That's what, that's what you're trying to do. do you just joy yeah. and you give us comfort. And and I didn't realize that until someone said, I said, yeah, you're right. That's yeah. what I'm trying to do. I know life is complicated. I know life is challenging. I know life can be difficult. And at every point in time, I'm trying to give people joy and comfort. And if that means more spirituality or less spirituality, more Judaism. Let me find what's going to give you joy and comfort, of course, in a principled way. Nice. And I didn't realize that until that person told me that. So so nice. do I consider myself a religious leader, spiritual leader? Yes, because people tell me that's how they feel about it, me. Is, is it a tough job? Yeah, sure, sure. It, it is be. tough? What's yeah. tough about it? Well, y y you're, you're faced with some very difficult experiences. Yeah. You know, when people lose children, it's heartbreaking, and I do not have any good answers I don't know if there are any good answers out there. People go through terrible illnesses and lose lose adored loved ones. It's very hard sometimes, and and I, and I wish I had a magic wand that can be a bomb on all people suffering. And sometimes I I I wish I could be more present and more. I I know and, and, you know the story about the the rabbi who is sick and the board directors you know has a meeting and the president comes to the rabbi and says rabbi we took you know we want to wish you a speedy recovery and and the, the resolution passed with the board eight to seven. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. So it, it's not always easy because I know inevitably there's people I've disappointed over the years. I know there's people who yes. were upset that I wasn't there for them, or I or I expressed a certain kind of political philosophy. I'm pretty much a centrist. I, you know, I, the only thing I think you should be radical about is kindness. I love the Dalai Lama. Religion, kindness is my religion. But I think everything else, I I, I really feel the golden mean. I that, that like that the center is where we should be. I mean, moderate right, moderate left. But I know some people are more to the right to be more to the left. And I know some people get disappointed by me and I, I feel badly about that. But I got to be true to myself and true to what I think is the best for for humanity. And I, and I always say for me, there are three guiding lights when I do my work, whether it's with March of the Living or with Habanim, my synagogue, is I'm always interested in the welfare of Israel. I'm all, all, always interested in the welfare of the Jewish people and the welfare of humanity. Yes. And while I could do something which is for one or the other, it can't exclude the other. I can't do something for Israel that's bad for humanity. I can't do something for Jewish people that's bad for Israel and humanity. I can't do something for humanity that's bad for Israel and the Jewish people. And I always try to touch those bases, and those are my guiding lights. So while I work for the March of the Living, I work for Habanim, these are my real guide stars, those three, those three posts, those three points. And as I've told you before many times, God chose Abraham to be the father of the Jewish people. And my feeling is God chose Abraham to follow the Jewish people because of Abraham's love of humanity. In the story of, uh, there's a very famous story when these three strangers are wandering in the desert. Abraham sees him from the distance. And what's Abraham doing at the time? Do you remember from your Chumash studying days? Yeah, so I know. I think his wife was baking bread. But uh, what else? What was, what was he doing? Learning Torah. No, he was talking to God. 
Standing by the gate. Yeah, yeah he was by the tent. Yep. By the yep. tent, yep. he's talking to God. And all of a sudden, Abraham sees three strangers. What does he do? Interrupts his conversation with God and goes to greet these right. three strangers. He interrupts his conversation. Now, let me ask you a question. If right. you You're were talking, talking to God, if you were talking, let's 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 go a little lower. Let's say Barack Obama was here with you, or the Dalai Lama, yeah. or Justin Bieber, whoever you idolize. <laughs> I think it was right. Justin Bieber. Okay. Oh, yeah. And all of a sudden, you saw three people you've never met before in your life who I don't know, shabbily dressed, might be. Would you just interrupt your? Con- I'll, I'll see. I'll see. Barack, we'll, we'll talk a little later. Would you do that? Probably not. Right. This is the master of the universe. Right. The master of the universe. And Abraham goes and greets him. And how, and how, and how does God feel? So the rabbis say, that's the point of the story. Greater than the reception of God is hospitality to strangers. What a profound lesson. That when somebody goes ahead and says they are harming people in the name of God, that's not God, any God I right. want to worship. Right. The God that I believe in is a God that says, take care of my children before you take care of me. God was proud of what Abraham did. And we, we see a little later on, when God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to destroy, destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. What does, God, what does Abraham say to God? Sure, you know what you're doing. No, he challenges God. God says to Abraham, says to God, shall not the judge of all the earth act justly? Shall he sweep away along the innocent along with the wicked? And God engages Abraham in a dialogue. And we see from there, you know, a couple of important lessons. First of all, God is is someone you can struggle and argue with. It's not, you know, we automatically have to follow God's dictates. Right. And secondly, we also see that 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 our 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 concept of justice is so supreme that even God himself, herself, has to be subject, subject to justice. You want to call yourself God, you better be just, otherwise you can't call yourself right. God. And thirdly, we see that our love for people should not be our own family only, not our own tribe, but it must extend across all humanity. That's why I think Abraham was chosen to be the father of the Jewish people because of his love for humanity. So and that's uh, what I believe in. Ellie, one of the very nice things about you is that you share your life with your friends. Uh, sometimes you impose your life on your friends, but mostly it's sharing. Um, I was joking about that too. Are you getting my jokes here or no? I am, sorry. Oh, yeah, well, you, you should laugh then if you're getting them. <laughs> Hold up a sign. Thank you. I will. I'll start. And you gave me a job at Habonim yes. after I had started via Havta, and it was a great way to supplement my income. But more so, it was a wonderful opportunity to be part of a, of a synagogue uh, that you had been running for a while, and, and certainly now it's, what, 26, 27 years, right? It's 30 years. 30 years. It started okay. in 88. My first high holiday service was in 88, so now it's... Th- 30 and a half years. So muscle tough for that. So you gave me this job and I was the assistant spiritual leader myself and I would stand up there on the high holidays. We would split the services. You would get one, I would get the other. I think there were two hour services. Um, And I had somewhere to go and I had something to do and I had something to do which was highly significant because of my background. um, Yes, I had replaced my orthodoxy with Tikkun Olam, but that wasn't always enough. And it didn't necessarily cover the high holidays. And in terms of going to a synagogue, I am completely lost and have been for years. So thank you for that job because really it it helped ground me. Um, And the synagogue has evolved through your tutelage in such a, a, a magical way. You have a waiting list of, I think, about 85 families, right? You're building a brand new shul. I think you raised about $13, $14 million. Unbelievable. And uh, the music that you have brought to Habonim is just grand. It's just wonderful. So w- what really is your, is your uh, philosophy, if you will, of, uh, of running a shul? Well, how, do you, how do you manage the place? What do you do? What do you bring to it? 
well, I just like to get out of the way. <laughs> yeah. No, listen, there, there, there is. It's not bad, actually. It's good. You know, I'm telling you, I, yeah. I, I, a good I, parent does that too. I, I had the first cantor was Esther Gan Firestone, and she was the first female cantor in Canada, and was an incredibly gifted singer, and was an opera singer. Yeah. And I, you know, I have to say, I wasn't the biggest fan of opera. What's that famous line? I love everything about opera except for the singing. <laughs> <laughs> But the way she sang touched everyone's hearts. Right. Uh, um, and then when you know she passed away, and she basically was singing until the uh, uh, you know, she passed away in her late eighties. She basically was singing to the end of her life. And what what uh, to go to synagogue every week and just to hear her. And then uh, um, at the same time we had a, we, we had a number of people who were who I was working with, and Aviva Reisky then became the senior cantor, who was also not a, not an operatic voice, more of a jazz smoky voice, but an exceptional musical gift yes. and. You just watch the faces of the people in the congregation when she sings. Uh, both Esther and Aviva had that same quality. They're just they just become one with the music. They transcend. They yeah they they just become one. They they transcend ego. They transcend um, anything about about anything anything technical and limiting. They are just become the note of the music they're singing. Yeah. And you can see how much joy and comfort that people in the synagogue get, and they get out of it because. They also realizing they're connecting to thousands of years before them. When these cantors are singing those words, even though they're female cantors, and we ha female cantors are a very relatively new phenomenon, they realize these are the same words that have been chanted in some cases for thousands and thousands of years. And they feel that incredible connection to the past. So I guess you know, my goal at the synagogue is to make sure that we have both the past and the present. Someone once said, "There's a path of fire and there's a path of ice." Path of fire says burn everything and start anew. The path of vice says freeze everything in the same place. Neither is, is wise. We have enough of the past that people feel the grand sweep of Jewish history. They feel that connection to thousands of years and generations before us. But there's enough of a present that they feel that they're empowered to deal with today's world's issues because hopefully in the sermons and in the programs we run and in the, and, and our work with Israel and the Jewish community and the First Nations community and all sorts of other groups across the country that we reach out to, hopefully we're also connecting them on a contemporary level as well. So I think it's a good mix of tradition and also relevance. Has the, has the has your work at the shul done a lot for you personally? Yeah, it's, like, it's, like what? It's given me first. I, I would say in two two ways. First of all, it's given me an ability to connect into Judaism to Judaism in a way that's meaningful to me. Because right. otherwise, I would be adrift. I would not find myself. I I I don't really go. Most places I go to, I don't connect to their 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 that religious experience. So I found a way to connect in a meaningful way to my Judaism. And secondly. I have found a way to connect many other people to Judaism in a way that they didn't find in other places. Yes. That gives me such comfort to know that, you know, I don't want to use the kind of word like save their souls, but to be able to be the one who brought people back to a community. Uh, I can't tell how many times people have said, we found home at Habanim. We finally found our home. And it's, I, I get, I'm not being excessively modest. I think it's because I stay out of the way and let the magic happen. The magic really is the music and I, 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 you know, Viva is great. Kim is great. Kim is our associate cantor. Tom Bellman is our is our guitarist. I mean, it's just you know, to be able to go there every week and to be uplifted by their or every few weeks, to be uplifted by their musical gifts is 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 pretty close to touching. Well, I have to tell you something. A, a few months ago, you were uh, honored 
for your work at March of the Living, actually, which we'll get to in one moment. You've been honored by the shul as well. Um, one of those evenings, the prime minister was there. The prime minister was there, and he spoke about your work, and he spoke about March of the Living. Um, and I tell you, I, I attended that evening. In fact, I, I was the MC when they when the synagogue honored you. Remember that? That was in 2012. Yeah, and yeah. and I'm sitting there thinking, you know, what a friend I have. <laughs> Honestly, what what you have accomplished in your life uh, to date, and you should be well for many years. Um, it's really quite something. It really is. I I have to just. We're not finished the interview yet, but it's a pleasure to watch you in terms of what you've accomplished at Habonim, March of the Living, the books you've written, the videos that you've produced, the movies. Now you're the chairperson of Israel uh, uh, Guide Dog Center for the Blind. Yeah, like you've really covered the gamut, human beings, animals, right across the spectrum. So good for you, Al. Uh, you're doing a great job. Okay, well, I, I will refer to a story I heard about David Foster, which is exactly how I feel about all David Foster... Said. The famous music producer. Yes. Canadian. Canadian, yeah. yeah. One of the world's most famous yeah. music producers. Yeah. I think he was the one that discovered Michael Buble, who was on one of your previous he shows. He was one right? of my shows, yeah. That's right. So, um, and this is the way I feel. Um, I, you know, I'm doing this story I heard about, I don't know how many years ago, but the, basically he got his first um, interview with the head of Motown Records, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, so he comes to my, I, he must have been in his early 20s, right? And the guy from Motown Records says to him, you know, it's okay, stuff was okay, but I, I don't think we're going to work together. Right. So David Foster realizes his whole, you know, everything's hanging in the balance. He says, oh, I got some more stuff. Yeah. He had nothing. Oh, really? I'll send it to you. No, no, no. Go go play on the piano. He had nothing. No, I'll send, no, no. Go play on the piano. Right, right. So, do you know the story? He told me So this, he goes yeah. to the piano and he starts playing a song. That later on became a hit by Earth, Wind, and Fire called After the Love is Gone, What Used to Be Right is Wrong, right? Right. But he just played the melody out. And the guy from Motown Records says, I think we're going to work together. Yeah. And David Foster said, that's when I realized that the music didn't come from me. Through. It came through me. Yeah, very good. Very good. And so what ha for me, what happens is when an idea seizes me, I'm just a vehicle. I'm just a channel. And it's all about getting the end goal, that vision to happen. So as you know, um, you know, I've been I, 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 very, very involved with, with uh, you know, when I was a younger person, I did work for the CNIB for blind people. I'm a huge animal lover, absolutely love animals, especially dogs. And although I love cats too, I don't want the cat people to get upset here. Yeah, we're getting any emails already. Cat hate email. And then, and then, <laughs> and then um, of course I've got, I'm, you know, I'm very, very dedicated to Israel. And I would go to the, 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 the place in Israel all the time, and the blind people would come to me and say to me, we want to come to Poland. We want to study the Holocaust. We want to go to Auschwitz. We want to learn about this. And I, I said, but, but why? They said, because, because you know, we have challenges, but we hear the stories of the survivors, but they really have challenges. So you know, And we're also part of the Jewish people. We're also part of, we also want to teach and share and, and learn and witness. And I said to myself, how can you witness when you can't see? But it was, of course, a naive question. Yes. And then I realized also, some of them told me that, you know what, we're disabled. And the first victims of the Nazis were not Jews. They were people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. They murdered something like 200,000 or so uh, people with disabilities, um, called them life unfit for life. And also they taught me was often the Nazis trained their dogs to, t to murder Jewish prisoners. Yeah. So the idea started formulating, wow, let's bring a group of people from the Israel Guide Dog Center for the Blind, who are blind, 
with their guide dogs to teach the world two lessons. First of all, we treat all people with dignity, especially people with disabilities. And secondly, we don't use dogs to kill people. We use dogs to help people. And the trip happened. We made a film out of it. And the central scene in the film, and by the way, these blind people saw more than you and I would see. They saw with all sorts of senses that we had never developed because they're blind. Yes. And the central scene in the film was one of the girls, Liron Artsy, this young girl, breaks down in Maidanic and she starts to sob. She can't see, but she's hearing what her guide says. It's the next two minutes. The dog licks a tear from her eyes. Blind love in a place of blind hate. And we made a film called Blind Love, a Holocaust Journey to Poland, Man's Best Friend. The film is shown every year on CBC on Holocaust Remembrance Day on the Doc Channel. It's shown every year in Israel's uh, main wonderful. station on Channel 10. And now we hope to get it shown in Poland. It's been translated into Polish. So you get this idea and it grips you. And you just run with it. You have no choice. You, you, you feel that this is what I'm here on the earth for. And who cares about the credit? Because it's not the point. The point is to get this story out, to get people to learn, to be compassionate and kind, and to, and to help people with disabilities, and to love their dogs, and all of that kind of stuff. I, I always tell people, every time I show the, I sh- I show the film, my dog got an extra treat. He didn't know why, but he took it anyways. So these ideas seize me, and I feel I have no choice but to run with them. And I've noticed that more so as you get older. You said to me recently, I have so much to do. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to do it all. Um, so the idea behind March Living, of which you are the national director, um, is to take young people to Auschwitz, to Europe, to Poland, and to have them see with their own eyes the concentration camps and to get a sense of what occurred there. And then subsequently you go to Israel. Um, you've taken some really, really interesting groups on not only March of the Living, but... The March of Remembrance and Hope, which is a Remembrance program for hope. students of diverse backgrounds. Now you First took Nations, s- Christians, Muslims, Hindu, You took Buddhist. some Rwandans? Yeah, absolutely. So, so tell me about that. Um, to see a Rwandan survivor holding yeah. hands with a Holocaust survivor yeah. in Maidanek and Auschwitz, and the Holocaust survivor telling the Rwandan survivor, I survived, I rebuilt my life, I married, I had children, you can too, there's, there's nothing more ennobling than that. And, and, and to learn about their tragedy, I mean, I, maybe, I hope we're coming to the conclusion because I, I have to go to a shiva, but um, um, maybe I'll even end on this story. This is one of the stories I tell in the March of Living, which I learned from the Rwandan tragedy, Romeo Dallaire. Heard it from him personally. Romeo Dallaire, one of the only people that tried to stop the genocide happening in Rwanda. He was a, he was a general. He was a Canadian general, but he was working in the United Nations at the time. Correct. One of the only people that tried to stop the genocide from happening. And the whole world knew the genocide was happening. When the Belgian troops... Before they were called back, they were called back, and Rwandan people they were protecting came to him and said, please shoot us, because if you don't shoot us, we'll be hacked to death after you leave, which is what happened. They got back to Belgium. They arrived on the tarmac. They took their berets, and they burnt them. Yeah. It's because we have left innocent people to slaughter. The world knew this was happening. I think one State Department official was, was challenged, don't you have to intervene in the genocide? The answer was, Oh, this is not genocide. It's only acts of genocide. Yes. 800,000 to a million people, most of them hacked to death. This is your answer. See how evil language can be used to, to divert responsibility. And Romeo Diller was one of the only people that's tried to stop this from happening. And he came back to Canada and he was suicidal because he felt he didn't succeed. Yeah, he had emotional but he, challenges. But here's the story. He comes to a village. The entire village is wiped out except for one child. He holds the village, the child up to his arms. The child is battered and bruised. And he says to himself at the time, what am I doing here? Thousands of miles away from home. Different country, different culture, different. Like, what am I doing here? 
Then he looked into the child's eyes. You know what he saw? Same eyes as his own children at home. Yeah. Wanting love, wanting protection, wanting dignity. And then yeah. Romeo Dallaire said, you know what? You know why Holocausts happen? You know why genocides happen? Because we haven't learned a simple fact that no human is more human than any other human. No human is more human than any other human. And once the world learns that, there'll be no more genocides. Why do genocides happen in Africa? Maybe, maybe we're not terrible genocidal racists, but somehow we feel they're less human. We have to get out of that mindset to understand that humanity is non-negotiable. And if all the kids get back from the March Living, of course they'll want Jewish identity in Israel and anti-Semitism, but if all they get out of that is that one simple lesson, that no human is more human than any other human, wow, that would be a great achievement. Elliot, one of the ideas behind Had Radio is really to bring goodness to our listeners, to create some sort of a community uh, whereby people recognize that while there's terrible things going on in our world, uh, there's a lot more things that are really good and kind. And I maintain that if that wasn't the case, then the world would not have survived. Uh, the Nazis probably would have taken over. But in fact, there were far more people who were intent upon being kind and being good, freeing those who were enslaved in one way or another. So I uh, I feel so strongly that, you know, what you said over the last hour and 20 minutes really speaks to that in a very big way because you're all about positivity and you're all about kindness and goodness. And uh, so I want to thank you so much for uh, doing this interview. I quite enjoyed it. And, I, you know, I can listen to you for hours. You did a beautiful job. Can I leave you to one last story? <laughs> I knew you would. This is a story which will hopefully be whenever I write this book of stories like you just mentioned, of stories of goodness and kindness yes, and ability. Yes. This is a story shared with me by Alec Gelter, uh, Oliver Shalom of Blessed Memory, who is one of the finest, finest storytellers you'll ever hear. And your mentor. My mentor, who, who taught me storytelling, who I learned storytelling from, and his mm-hmm. son Jim is a good friend of mine, a gr- fat, fabulous musician, by the way, who also helps out under synagogue high holiday services. Great, great guy. Um, and um, the story is part Midrash. Midrash means rabbinic imagination, um, coming up with, with ethical lessons through rabbinic, r- the rabbinic imagination, but part of it is actually historically true. So the part that's Midrash goes like this. During the Holocaust, the angels come to God and say, you must destroy the world. You stored the generation of the flood. You stored, destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because they're evil. Look what they're doing to your people. Look what they're doing to your children. God looks down upon the world and sees Maidanik and Sobibor and Chelno and, and Treblinka and Belgets and then sees Auschwitz and God is almost convinced it's time to destroy the world until the following scene unfolds in Auschwitz-Birkenau. Lola Birnbaum had arrived from the town of Konin and as far as she knew her entire family had been murdered and then she finds out that her teenage son is still alive and she goes to her guard and says, please get this my most precious possession to my son in the men's camp. And what was her most precious possession? Her daily ration of bread. And Ellie Wiesel says, in the camps, we weren't people. We were just stomachs. That's all we thought about was bread. And she was sacrificing her daily ration of bread and maybe even risking her life to get it to her son. Does it make it to the men's camp? It does. Because the next day, the slice of bread comes back with a note attached to it. Dear mother, I love you very much, but you need the bread just as much as I do. Signed, loved by her son. And just then, God looked down upon the world. Just then, God looked down upon the world and said, Seeing that slice of bread being handed from prisoner to guard, from Jew to Gentile, from female to male, all the way across from the women's camp to the men's camp, and all the way back, and nobody would steal the slice of bread because nobody wanted the violent love of a mother for her child and a son for his mother. And just then God said, you know what? I will not destroy the world. 
there's even goodness left in a place like Auschwitz. And that's why the world was saved. And that story is called The Slice of Bread That Saved the World. All right. Thank you, Ellie Rubenstein, for doing our fifth episode on Had Radio. And thank you to all of our listeners. And Avram, uh, thank you for all the incredible work that you do. And maybe one day I'll interview you. I would like to see that, Ellie, story. yeah. <laughs> I look forward to it. I would look forward thank to you. it as well. Maybe we'll do that in the show one day. Thank you, my dearest friend. Thank you, my dearest friend, as well. And uh, we have some other great people lined up. So stay tuned, listen to our show, and share the link. Thanks a lot. Step inside my living room. Share a little talk. By roads walked and lessons learned. Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height 